We're in Acts chapter 4 this week. We are going to try to cover the entire chapter today. There's a lot going on, so we're going to have to move quickly. I'll read a little bit and then start just uh, breaking through the text as we, as we preach. So Acts chapter 4, verse 1 says, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the commander of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. It's important to note the Sadducees. Uh, they were angry because they were teaching the people and denouncing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were angry because they were teaching the people and denouncing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees are mad because these Peter and John are teaching the people. Remember, they're at the temple, right? They just last week we just healed a forty-year-old lame man who's now leaping. They're inside the temple. Uh, Peter's basically saying, you know, who healed him was the one you crucified. Thankfully, uh, your crucifixion wasn't too stout because he's resurrected and his power, his resurrection power is in us. The Sadducees are mad because they're teaching the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had listened to the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So, um, the Sadducees were a sect of Judaism. So you had several different Jewish sects at this time. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Zealots, and you had the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. Now, when Jesus was rolling around teaching, who were his primary adversaries in the religious world? Do you all remember? Who was it? The Pharisees, right? The, the religious uh, opposition was from the Pharisees. Now the church seems to be frustrating this other Jewish sect called the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees, uh, I'll, I'll read a little just bio of the Sadducees. So they were those who denied the resurrection. They were politically sided with Rome. So they actually were benefiting from Roman rule. Um, so their reaction is because in their view, the apostles' teaching was politically, socially, and religiously destabilizing to their relatively good relationship with Rome. The Sadducees basically were a people who were in bed with the Roman government. The Roman government's a pagan government at the time, but the Sadducees have somehow eased their way in so that they are benefiting from Roman rule. This is not a foreign idea because we've seen Christianity has unfortunately sided with imperial power many times throughout our history to our detriment we'll get to that one day the Sadducees because they know that their power is being threatened are now basically coming against Peter and John have have them thrown in jail and their reason is because they see this thing could pick up some momentum. Like, uh, this is not just a religious story. This lame man who we know has been out here begging for alms week after week after week, day after day after day, is healed, he's leaping, and he's following these guys, and they're saying that it is a resurrected Jesus who they're calling the Messiah. They're saying it's his name that healed this man. So, it's important for us to remember, we're going to go in and out of the the context into where we are in our, our, our context. Um, but here's just to bounce out a minute. Uh, 
This is a quote from Willie Jennings. He said, The struggle against those in power that marked the life and death of Jesus was coming for the church, the apostles, as well. Now, it's important that we note the church was quickly becoming a threat. So, you got to remember, this people did not exist prior to just a few days ago in the story. And in Acts 2.41, 3,000 people were added to this group of people. In Acts 2.47, it says the Lord added to their number daily. In Acts 4, verse 4, it says they numbered about 5,000 people. Now, at this time, they only counted grown men in a census. So that what they were counting was there was at least 5,000 men, not including more than likely women and children that were added to this group. This thing was growing quickly, thus becoming a political, social, religious threat. We'll see why here in just a little bit. So uh, I want to I give you three sort of reasons why uh, two scholars I was reading say that the church was growing the way it was. One is Roland Allen. Um, he said that the church was founded on these three things that was basically creating irresistible growth. Number one was the irresistible attraction of their communal life. Number two was the spontaneous evangelistic activity of the local congregation. And number three was that they were planting more of these congregations as they spread out geographically. Another guy said that what was growing he listed three points as well, was their public preaching, their preaching in the synagogue, and the attraction of believers gathered in homes and caring for each other. I want to emphasize those two things. It's actually the same thing in those two lists, which is the irresistible attraction of their communal life. The way Schnabel put it is the attraction of believers who were gathered in homes and caring for each other. So... This is what is growing this group of people. That what is attracting people to basically believe that Jesus is the Messiah is signs, wonders, miracles, and a community that was living an alternate way. This was what was expanding the message that Jesus was the Messiah. So they had an attractional ministry. Now... Nowadays, if you say attractional ministry, what we mean is professional music, dynamic communicator, really good free coffee. That's, the, the, that's attractional ministry nowadays. This is not what they had, right? They were using borrowed temples and homes, but what was attracting people was their common life together, their public preaching, which we'll get to in a minute, and their preaching in the synagogues. Michael Goheen said it was with the indefatigable. That means they were the inability to be fatigued. That's what that word is. With their inability to be fatigued, they had a resolve of athletes in training. And the church persisted steadfastly in the word of God. That's the teaching of the apostles. Fellowship, the word koinonia, which we'll talk about some today. The Lord's Supper and prayer. Now here's what's interesting. When they start getting this pushback from the Sadducees who had partnered up with the Roman government, because how many know the Sadducees were Jewish people? They were religious people. So how did religious people have a jail? They didn't, right? The Roman government had a jail. And they were so partnered with the Roman government, they could just pull the string and say, hey, put these rascals in jail. 
So this is, I want you to see this sort of interconnection between Imperial Rome and the Sadducees. They get Peter and John in jail, and the church immediately, immediately begins to pray in response to what's going on. This is the, the theme of Acts, is that the church responds to persecution, not by rendering persecution, but by prayer. And I want you to see who they believe they are in opposition to. So here's what's going on. Verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, When they were released, Peter and John went to their fellow believers and reported everything the high priest and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices to God with one mind and said. So basically, what this is capturing, and this is, who knows, Luke is telling the story however he wants to tell the story, but basically this is a communal corporate prayer. So at the end of the sermon today, we will say a prayer today, and every one of us will sort of know how to say that prayer. And we'll say, Our Father, who art in heaven. This is sort of what's going on. With one mind, they are praying a prayer, and here's their prayer with one mind and one voice. They're saying, Master of all, you who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them, who said by the Holy Spirit through your servant David, our forefather, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot foolish things? The kings of the earth stood together, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Christ. For indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together in the city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. And now, Lord, pay attention to their threats and grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage. Here's their prayer. God, we're being persecuted and we're being threatened. What's our way out? We need to speak your message with great courage. While you extend your hand to heal, and while you bring about miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God courageously. Corporate prayer that recognized that the opposition to them was not the Sadducees or the Roman government, but was something bigger than that. And they said, our response is not going to be to fight them or outwit them. Our response, God, is just give us courage to speak what you've done and then support us with signs and wonders. All right, so here's that context. Let's pull us out to 2022, Heflin, Alabama. We're not being persecuted. More than likely, because we are Sadducees. We'll go back to the text. They ask for boldness. They have become a threat to the existing social order. They were threatening political influence, they were threatening power, and they were threatening control. They were not in bed with it. They were a threat to it. They pray neither for judgment on those who are persecuting them, nor do they ask God, God, help us avoid persecution. But they pray for their own strength and enablement in the midst of persecution. 
Now, for the most part, we're coming back from the text, back to 2022. When I said that we're probably not being persecuted because we're Sadducees, it's important for us to realize, yeah, that's probably true. Because the only way we can get out of it is if we admit that that's where we are. The church has been in bed with power since the third century. Rarely have we seen, you know, groups of Christians rise up throughout the world. Christianity's, you know, fairly old at this point, 2,000 this year's old. Rarely have we seen it rise up and not be in bed with power. One of the first uses of the cross was to put on the armor of the soldiers who were basically proselytizing, which means converting people through imperial military strength. Basically saying, if you don't convert to Jesus, guess what you get? The sword. You know, you get a lot of converts that way. You do. Uh, and So we created a bunch of people who were Christians. Why were they Christians? Because the people with the sword... Told them if they didn't become Christians, they'd get whacked. Well, we are coming into a place in the United States where we actually get to be the church again. Not the Sadducees. Because we are losing our political influence. And it would behoove us to do so. Somebody told me one time, they said, we need a Christian president. I said, you know what we need? We need a president who will stop manipulating Christians by saying that they're Christians and just be honest. So that the church can stop staking our hope in the government of any institution made by a man. God is not redeeming the world through the president of anywhere. He's redeeming the world through his church. I won't even tell you who I said needs to rise up and be president because y'all think I was a wacko. The way Jesus decided to redeem the world was not by coming in and taking the highest seat of power and saying, all right, I'm here, I'm the king, I'm on the throne. It was by forsaking all power, coming and serving and dying for the ones who were trying to kill him. The one who was actually killed by the imperial system was the, one who, the only one who had the power to change it. Surely not. Well, how do we do that? Because we talked a couple weeks ago on proclaiming the gospel and how we can't just go out into the street right now and start proclaiming Psalm 119 and Psalm 16 and, and then say, this scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. Because you know what they'll think? They're, they've got a mental diagnosis. 
The reason we see this happening in Acts is because that is the way you can engage a culture that is primarily speaking from a scriptural background. We're not engaging with that culture. So how then do we proclaim the gospel? Because what we know is, and this is what we're trying to practice, one of the things that spreads the church is the irresistible attraction of their communal life. We're, we're, we're stirring that up, right? We got folks meeting in homes. We got folks sharing burdens. We got folks asking for help. We got folks giving help. It's, it's happening. Some stuff is happening there. But there's, there's this tension between embodying the gospel, which we must do, the thing that has been missing from gospel proclamation for years and years and years is embodiment. So we're trying to reinstate that. But balance with embodiment is proclamation. We also have to have some words to share. Now, here's the concern. Christianity is a very exclusive religion. I'm going to read to you a scripture. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Guess what just happened? Salvation just became exclusive. How many names under heaven are there by which we can be saved? One. Okay. Well then, if we know that name, we need to be stirring up. It's, it's in his name and through faith in his name. It's Jesus the Messiah. We need to somehow figure out some language like that, right? Y'all tracking with me? John Dixon said this, and this is where I want to I say this before. I'm about to start getting into some very practical steps. I'm going to go from whatever this is where I do where I walk around the pulpit 40 times to just trying to meticulously say something here in just a second. Okay, and I want to start it with this John Dixon quote. He said, promoting the gospel to the world is more than a rescue mission, though it is certainly that as well. It is a reality mission. It is our plea to all to acknowledge that they belong to one Lord. All right. For a Christian, Jesus Christ is the truth. If Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, the life, Guess what that means for everything else that claims to be the way, the truth, and the life? They're not. That is a very ex exclusive claim. So what has happened from the, basically the third century on is we've taken that claim that Jesus Christ is the truth and we've come in with an arrogant posture saying, we've got the answer, you don't, we're in power, you're not. If you don't believe what we believe, you're going to hell. But guess what? That was proclamation without embodiment. You cannot believe Jesus Christ is the truth unless you embody and imitate Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is not a propositional statement. Jesus Christ is not words written on a page. Jesus Christ is word made 
flesh. I said, I'd stop walking around the pulpit. I can't. So as a propositional statement, if just in a book somewhere it says Jesus Christ is the truth, I can take that and I can basically join myself along the empire like the Sadducees did, and I can start whacking heads saying, we got the answer, we got the answer. There's no, there's no salvation anywhere else. This is it. Leslie Newbegin said, the claim of one group to have the truth for all is potentially disastrous. Right? When that truth is a person, though, rather than just a propositional statement we can find on a page, to adhere to that truth, the particular exclusive truth, we are bound to imitative behavior much more than regurgitative words. For instance, to believe Jesus saves, that word saves there in 412 is Saved, healed, delivered, made whole. To believe that Jesus heals does me no good. Say, say Robert doesn't believe Jesus heals and I believe Jesus heals. And we're in a debate about Jesus healing or Jesus not healing. I say, he heals. Jesus, Robert, he don't heal. He does heal. He don't heal. I, I got my scriptures. Robert got his scriptures. That's called cognitive propositions. All right? We can just beat heads all day long with those right there. But what it means to believe that Jesus is the truth is that I would embody something. And guess what embodiment would do? It would pray for someone and they'd be healed. It'd be that simple. Do I believe Jesus heals? Well, I'll pray for somebody and they'd be healed. I don't have to reason. It's, what I'm trying to get us to see before I move on is that the faith that we are trying to get the world to see is not something that that we can harness with reason. It must be embodied. If I am a hateful, spiteful jerk and can recite all the scriptures, guess what I don't believe? I don't believe that Jesus is Lord. Because if he is Lord, I'd imitate him. The idea that Jesus Christ can be harnessed as a propositional truth, as just words, without embodying the life-altering reality of his, his lordship is just inherently contradictory. It's impossible. I can't say Jesus is Lord and hate my neighbor. If I hate my neighbor, I don't believe Jesus is Lord. I can't say Jesus is Lord and not be able to forgive my enemy. Jesus is Lord if I don't forgive my enemy. If I curse those who curse me, Jesus is not Lord. No matter what I say with my cognitive propositional mouth. Because to believe the gospel is to be consumed by a truth that is a person. Not regurgitative information. To make the claim that Jesus is Lord is more something someone does with her ethic than her mouth. What is an ethic? A way of interacting with people, with a society. 
the Christian gospel has been made the tool of imperialism. I want you to just break that word down, imperialism, because it will come up a lot in Acts. Imperialism is basically when a particular government decides, rather than being in their territory, they have the right to take over the rest of the world. Okay, so we've had several empires throughout our history. Any governmental structure that decides it's going to go outside of its geographic territory to take over other lands is considered an empire. All right? So the Christian gospel has been made the tool of imperialism. To break that down for us, we have tried to convert people with an imperialistic strategy. We've tried to go in, and rather than listening to our community, rather than listening to people who aren't like us and learning from them, we've gone in to say, you have nothing to teach me. I'll only talk to you if you convert to me. When what we just saw is that at a secular university just up the road, God is working, and we wouldn't have known had we not had some behind-the-scenes access. But I could have come in there as a young college student, fired up, thinking I'm about to proselytize the entire campus. God's not here unless it's with me, right? And I'm over here just working against the grain of God, what God's doing, and all I had to do is just listen for a minute. God's here moving. God is in every community we live in, working in people's lives, drawing them to, to himself. And all we got to do is embody the gospel. That's all we got to do. One of the things that was attracting people to this faith was that they were eating together, they were praying together, they were sharing things. And one of the reasons I want to share with you right quick because this chapter ends with another emphasis on them sharing things. One of the reasons they were having to share things is you've got a lot of folks who just moved into a community who are now like giving themselves to it, who don't have a lot of resources. So it was just a practical step for them to start selling land and sharing possessions, which I'm all for. At its heart, Christianity is the denial of all imperialism. I'll explain that very carefully in just a second. For at its center, there's the cross where all imperialisms are humbled and we're invited to find the center of human unity and the one who has made nothing so that all might be one. Here's the big point of today. What I've been trying to say if I haven't said it. We are canceling the proclamation of the gospel if with our mouth we say Jesus is Lord and with our body we worship mammon. If our, if our mouth we say Jesus is Lord and with our bodies we are filled with bitterness. If with our mouth we say that Jesus, you are the Messiah, but in our interactions we're hateful. It cancels the message. The message must be embodied as well as proclaimed. And what will happen is we will not have to in, invoke the conversation. I was on a phone call this week with my buddy Matt Ritchie. And Matt just went from a smartphone to, um, I think it's called a, I don't even know what it's called, like a plain phone or a simple phone or something like that. So he, his job requires that he be trendy. But to care for his children, he realized that his smartphone was distracting him way too much. He didn't have the self-control to have one. So he got him a phone that only calls and texts, all right? Matt said he has had more opportunity to share the gospel by holding that phone than anything he's had in 
to his memory. Because people say, why do you have that phone? And Matt can then start sharing why he wants to be the father that he is, why he wants to be present for prayer, why he doesn't want to be distracted in moments and actually be able to give glory to God when he's sitting in a doctor's office rather than just eating up the doo-doo that scrolls through your phone, right? But his actions have made him a source of, that, that people can inquire. Why are you doing that, Matt? Well, because I, I realized I didn't have near as much time to pray, uh, or I wasn't taking as much time to pray just in, in these dead times of my day. I realized that when my child was in the floor, I wasn't even beholding them being there. I was distracted. And I want to be the loving father that God is to me. I want to give the presence and the attention that God has given me. And so just little things like that has allowed Matt to say, because Jesus is Lord. We've got to get more of those things. We've got to get more of those things that are ways of life that set us apart from the ways of the world so that when people inquire, why do you do that? Cody, why... Why do you do this particular thing with your money? Why don't you do this particular thing with your money? Why do you welcome people into your home the way you do? We need to have these things so that we can be a visible witness, a city set on a hill, a lot that is not hid under a bush, so that people can see this point here. And this is the the last thing I want to say. Jesus has not become the exclusive means of salvation so that nobody can get it. The truth is, without him, nobody can get it. So it's seemingly exclusive, but the truth is that without Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, none of us get it anyway. It's not that if Jesus didn't come, then there could have been universal salvation. No, if Jesus hadn't come, none of us would have known the way. But he comes and says there's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved, whereby we can be saved. And it is in this exclusive claim that he has made a people who are a people for the sake of all the other people. It is in this exclusive claim that he has universally welcomed the entire world to say, come and look, come and see. This is what it means to be human. This is who God is. So in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, we don't have to go in with the posture that truth means we are more right than everyone else. Because here is just a practical example of what I've been trying to say all day. If I believe Jesus is the Messiah, I will not walk around thinking I know everything. Actually, I will walk around postured in humility because that's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He never told me to know everything. What he told me was, be humble. I don't have to walk around hoping I have the answers to all the questions. All I have to do is walk around in submission to him as Lord. Lord.